Listener Production. Shares, Market. the S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, like a fine wine, just gets better with age. I'm Scott Phillips, speaking of age, and he is Andrew Page, the founder, the brains behind the amazing uh, stimulus, the... You know, the great ideas. I've run out of ideas, mate. What do you got for me, Andrew? <laughs> I don't have much, mate. Other than, yes, I'm, I'm the man behind Strawman, a private online investment club, just to get that in early. Really? Um, yeah, and it's good I, Good to chat, mate. Why do you Why do you think I would Why do you think I would want to know that? What, what no, makes just, you possibly imagine that I, I don't, want I, to know what Strawman is? I don't know. Is? Just in case, I thought I'd put it out there. <sighs> Fair enough, I suppose. I, I, th- I just feel like that's getting a bit old, mate. I feel like you talk about it all the time. You keep mentioning it. Oh, it's getting old. Like <laughs> it's, been, it's very much getting old. <laughs> uh, older still by the time this goes to air because we are pre-recording this episode. I think this is going to be the last Friday pre-record before we are back in uh, in real time, back in the... We're going to undo the temporal something, something. Is there a Star Trek reference or a Star Wars reference there? Usually is. Quantum leap, potentially. Were you a quantum leap fan as a kid? Back in the day, I was, yeah. I was quantum leap. Scott Bakula, who, by the way, for those sci-fi nerds, turned up in a Star Trek series and he's very very good enterprise Star i want to say enterprise. well done yes yeah, yeah. okay yeah. i answered that i said that a bit too quickly didn't i yeah. <laughs> i want to say it's really like oh, i know this i'm just going to be humble i'm going to pretend <laughs> it's um it's it's all about humility mate we are going to spend this episode talking about one of the biggest i reckon one of the biggest challenges one of the most often asked questions but also one of the most overlooked parts of investing at the same time and i think you know, one of my one of my great issues with life in general, I got lost of them, is people talk about averages when they should be talking about distributions, mm. right? And I've said this before. The old joke is an economist is someone who puts one hand in the freezer, one hand in the oven, and says, on average, things are okay. Yeah. Um, we talk about averages as if it as if that's the only thing that matters. When it's house prices or mortgages, we talk about that a lot. You know, the average affordability, for example, you know, missing the fact that some are paying out of cash with their million dollar salaries and others are, you know, underwater and going further deeper. But the average is okay or the average is whatever it is. Mm. When it comes to investing, I kind of feel like it's the same thing. I said at the same time, it's often discussed. Plenty of people listening here are like, that's all they do is talk about portfolio management. Other people are like, well, I don't really, really think about it. The average is somewhere in between, of course. But it's I think one of the most useful conversations but when you don't really hear much about right you read the financial press everything's about individual companies and by definition they are the building blocks of any portfolio so again this is where it gets messy because what is a portfolio a bit like you say you know what there's not just because an economy it's just all these different people doing these different things mm. what is a portfolio but the companies that make it up and yet and yet i think and i think you think there is real value in understanding what you're doing so yes. i'm going to just ask you a question off the bat mate which is simply what is a portfolio. A portfolio is just a collection of individual assets and securities. And it's just, its form and structure really should reflect your view of, of the opportunity set uh, that's out there, but should also very much factor in um, risk. You know, I mean, right. it's, it is diversification, but it, it's, it's more than that as well. So mm, mm. there's a lot of sort of studies out there that tend to suggest that actually asset allocation is, is by far the biggest determinant. If you're doing nothing but saying, I'm just going to have 60%, I'm making these numbers up, by the way, but 60% exposure to equities, I'm going to have 20% in property or, or whatever it happens to be, tends to be much more influential to your overall returns. Now, as you say, there are, there are obvious exceptions to the rule. Mm. Um, 
And it's obviously at the end of the day, it's the total that matters. I mean, you might feel really yeah. good about yourself if you if you nab a ten bagger on the stock market. But if it was 2% of your portfolio, well, okay, still that's <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's still okay. Yeah. But Maybe still. I should say 0.1% of a portfolio. It's probably not going yeah. to have t- too much of a difference there. So, um, yeah, you've got to think holistically. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it's a good point though, mate, because let, let's start with that 10-bagger question. and uh, We'll go off a tangent to start with because you raised a good one. It does kind of matter, right? Like if you pretend, if you put $1,000 in, in an idea and at 10 bags, statistically that is a remarkably great, result a remarkably great outcome really really rare unusual you either got lucky or smart or some combination of both and let's be honest a lot of investing is is luck we don't always want to recognize it but it's true uh but if you put a thousand dollars in it you got 10 grand now nine grand profits lovely but that's not buying you a new boat right there are and look you know everyone's got to start somewhere if if you're 21 and starting you've got a thousand bucks you've got 10 you're doing really well it's a great start to an investment career because you've then got 10 grand to compound for the rest of your life Mm. but it does it does matter right so so let me let me kind of ask you. Let's just start with some broad questions. We'll get further into it. What, how many companies do you need in a suitably diversified, quality portfolio of assets that you're holding for the long term? What, what does that look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'd go even beyond individual shares here. I think you've got to start right at the at the highest highest of level. Like I've got so much disposable cash for investing. Mm-hmm. It can go in property. It can go in bonds. Uh, and go under the mattress. It can go in shares. Mm-hmm. In um, the bank, yep. Yeah, go in the bank. Any of these kinds of things. So I think you have to start mm-hmm. off there. And the, like in life, and in so many things, you've always got to keep in mind that there's a trade-off with everything. I think everyone listening to this podcast will get that. I mean, it's just objective truth. When you look at the long-term returns of asset classes, shares are, are by by far the best. They mm-hmm. they just are right. Um, but there's a compromise there, which is. You don't want to put your money there for a short amount of time uh, unless, you're, right. unless you happen to be a very lucky individual because it tends to sort of go up in fits and starts and it sort of, you know, goes, goes down plenty of elevator shafts <laughs> along the way. Um, or yep. you can just go complete cash, 100%, you know, let's not get into a whole other rabbit warren there, but in theory, 100% sort of safe. <laughs> um, but you're just going to be bled dry over the, over the course mm. of time. Risk, I mean, you want to talk about risk, right? Cash is the riskiest investment for a long-term investor. So it's going to, it's all of that kind of stuff. And it's it, the ultimate, look, there's no right answer here. It's got mm. to be a reflection of your own situation, your own risk tolerances, your own outlooks and your own views, your own expectations. So it's, it's going to very much reflect that. And then within that, you know, you can diversify or spread your money around within sectors is usually a good mm. idea as well. So to answer your question, I think, and, and to, to emphasize this, trade-off, this compromise uh, consideration is that we all know that diversification is one of those free kicks in investing. It really is the easiest way, guaranteed way, to, to mm. reduce your risk. But but there's a bit of a bell curve here because you, there's a nice sort of sweet spot you can kind of get to, broadly speaking. But if you diversify too much, you kind of just guarantee yourself really, really me- mediocre returns. There is a risk right. in not taking enough risk. All investing is risk. Let's be real for a second, right? So don't pretend that you're, there's anything out there that is a, a purely risk-free rate of return. But, but you know, if, if you are, especially hypothetically, right, you're a 25-year-old, you're going to be working for at least another 40 years or so. 
and you think, well, I want to be reasonably smart. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to always keep thirty percent of my money in cash. I would argue that that was a terribly risky strategy <laughs> for a forty-year kind of period. Mm. So, so when I, when you say what's the ideal sort of form and structure and diversification, it depends on on who you are. But to to give the the standard answer, I think, and just to keep it on equities for a moment, I think the the evidence tends to show that you get a huge amount of risk with one stock, no matter what it is. It can be something that's considered super blue chip, like a HIH or an Enron were it at certain points mm. in time. And you buy two shares and all of a sudden you kind of halve it. But it's not a linear relationship and it tends to bottom out around, depending on which study you want to look at, but generally speaking, somewhere around 15 or 20. In other words, once you get beyond that point, you're actually not adding any value. You're not actually reducing your risk that much. Plus, you're burdening yourself with a whole bunch of extra admin and work and hassle and other things to kind of watch. So I I would tend to sort of say around that level is a really, really good good place to start. I want to go back to the asset allocation question because yep. you've said two things which I think to some ears will sound contradictory. Almost the very first sentence we talked about when we started getting this, you said, studies show asset allocation is almost the only thing that matters. Yep. What's that effect? And then you said, well, we know that long-time shares tend to outperform, so it kind of depends on who you are. Yes. How can those things both be true? How can it be true that asset allocation is more important than uh, the shares you buy? Or maybe maybe that is the point. Uh, you know, the, the 60% bonds, 40% bonds, the uh, property, cash, whatever. I mean, asset allocation in the sense that you need to choose which assets you buy, which asset class you buy into. Mm. But arguably as stock pickers, generally speaking, I mean, you and I, I own some ETFs, you own some ETFs, but generally speaking, um, you know, a, a well-bought house may do better than the stock market average. The same way as a yeah. poorly purchased share will do worse than even a disappointing housing market and everything in between. So there are, there are layers of this, right? There is... If you if you were to effectively index these asset classes, making a choice, but then recognizing that you and I are in the job of trying to beat an index, uh, just as by the way, some property investors would rightly say the property market is not what they're interested in. They're looking for the property that's going to do better because yep. of whatever whatever combination of factors. And I'm the first. I'm not a property expert, so I'm not going to do that anywhere near as much just as I can with shares. So. How do you, as an individual investor, break down the kind of the averages conversation? And then contrast that with the specifics or, or, or the opportunities that may exist at a, at a very micro level, company by company, property by property, uh, bond by bond, effectively. I mean, these things are all in play, right? Yeah, I should give some context to some of these studies. So what, what they do is they sort of say, you know what, they look at various periods of time and what what investors or what strategies did the best. And it's not so like when, when let's say there's a, a, a particular period where equities do extremely well. Now, obviously, you pick the better equities, you're going to do much better. You pick the bad ones, <laughs> yeah, you're not going right. to do do as good. But yep. generally, when the bulls are running, right, it's great. Just, it's just a, anyone who's just sort of there, a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, at least, when things get really scary and everyone piles into fixed interest, it's kind of just you then. Does it matter which bonds? You know, is it a, is it a three-month US Treasury? Is it an Australian government bond for 10? They all tend to do reasonably well. So what these studies sort of say is like, well, when we look at various strategies and approaches, what really mattered here? Was it because this manager particularly chose a really good basket of bonds or you know really good basket of shares no right, it just right. it was just that they were right place right time so i think that 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 is that makes a lot of sense and and, and i guess the mm-hmm. take home there is is that you know it matters right like you you want to 
you want to be in an area where there's a wind, there's wind in your sails, right? So even if you're not picking the best stocks, when when everything's sort of going up, it's a good place to kind of be. So that's so you should be market timing. No, no. Well, this is the other thing, right? It's sort of um, uh, uh, what may have worked at one period in time may not work in another, and it kind of mm. is all predicated on 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 actually picking that extremely well. And if you want to have a bit of humility, and I think you should. And I think history strongly suggests this. It is a very, yes. very, very tough thing to do. I think you and I have sort of made the point many times that what we do is, look, let's be real. If I could time the market, I would time the market, right? It is objectively better if I can buy low and sell high and just pick every major inflection point on the market. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> I'm going to get all the upside. Perfect foresight I, would be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. none of the downside. Absolutely. Yep, yep. But if, yep. if you sort of, when, when it dawns on you, and it usually takes a few harsh <laughs> lessons of, of the market <laughs> to have, have the lesson really rubbed in. And yes. you're like, I can't do that. And you just, you basically, it's, it's just, it gets taken out of the equation. No one enjoys, I mean, as I've said, like the last year hasn't been, I mean, covered myself in glory, right? But at the same time, what was I expecting, right? Did I expect each and every year I'm just going to knock it out of the park and outperform the market? I spoke in a previous episode of Warren Buffett himself, who's a multi-year underperformance periods and lagging the market. Even when the market's going up, there's been time where Berkshire has gone down. But overall, it's pretty good. So the compromise, I think, we take and we probably advocate for is just roll with the punches. And and most people can't, right? It's easy to sort of say, oh, I'm going to back up the truck when everyone's scared and rah, rah. But you, mm. you won't and you don't, or not to the extent that you think that you can. But if you just fold that into the reality of the situation, that's I'm going to expect that. This is a this is a game. And this is why, again, you have to sort of have a long-term view on it is that, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but I generally think productive enterprise is a really good place to park capital over long periods of time. Um, there will be periods where it outperforms. There will be periods where it underperforms. There'll be certain investments within that class that do much better than others. But oh, on average, over time, if I can get Double digits would be nice, 10%, 15% if I want to be a bit ambitious. You know, well, 15%, I'm going to double my money, what, every five years or so. Five years, yeah. And yeah. it's never 15% a year. It's up 30%, then it's down 15%, <laughs> and it's whatever, everything in between. But that's a really nice that's a really nice situation. Hopefully that squares the circle a bit. How do you, how do you think about that? So I- you run into a massive issue. I, I'm, I'm trying to work out how to answer your question without going back to first principles and then coming off a long run because it really, really matters, right? And I think I've said regularly, mate, in this podcast, there are two very different approaches, two very different ways to think about the right answer to any question, right? One is the theoretical, theoretically correct answer. And the other is the answer that actually people can do something with. Hmm. And so I guess as, as you rightly say, there is a very, I'm, I have a very clear view that I expect over time shares to continue to outperform every other asset class, dollar cost averaging over, you know, years and years well into the future. So if you say to me, well, I'll tell you my, personally, I have a house and a car and everything else is in shares. So, you know, I, I have no investment properties. I have no bonds. I have, you know, a little bit of cash, but effectively I, don't, I like to be invested where I can as much as I can possibly be invested. So my entire, my entire portfolio allocation is, again, I don't, I don't, I don't actually consider the place I live an investment asset. It's an asset, of course, but not an investment asset. So I'm 100% shares. My asset allocation is 100% shares, less a little bit of cash from time to time when it builds up before I manage to get around to investing it again. But reality is, I want to be 100% invested and 100% in shares. Can I before so, you go on? Before yeah, I, yeah, it's uh, that beckons the question: Why? 
Well, that's what I was going to say about asset allocation, right? Because there is when people talk about it, when you look at a when you look at a there's this great chart I can't remember who publishes it now where they show year by year all the major asset classes and the return from each asset class. And they kind of color code it or there's one through 10 or whatever. And you see, you know, some of your shares beat bonds, some of your bonds beat shares, some of your property beats oh, yes. all, you know, gold, there's cash, all that stuff, right? You kind of see, oh, it would have been good in 1972 to have been all in bonds and then 1974 to be all in shares or whatever the numbers are. Um, and the reality is when you talk about asset allocation, people think, oh, how much of each should I have? Mm. That's why I asked you the question before. To my mind, history suggests that over the last 120 odd years, shares have soundly beaten every other asset class. And over the last 30 years, just Google Vanguard index chart, my usual exhortation to our listeners, um, you'll see that shares, despite a much more volatile journey, have soundly beaten the pants off bonds and property and cash and CPI, by the way. And so when you look at that, unless you believe the future is going to be different to the past, and I don't, uh, although there are, I guess you can make an argument for it, um, particularly different interest rates. I my, my my firm belief is that it's likely that the power of capitalism, as as imperfect as it is, continues to generate better returns for those who are invested in businesses rather than in property, rather than in cash, rather than in bonds. And there's kind of reasons for each of those to be less impressive. Um, and I don't want to go to well, I can't go into as much detail as you want, but let's not bore our listeners. The reality is, cash in the bank is going to be low interest because it's considered air quotes safest and the government back and all that kind of stuff. So you're going to get an okay return, right? The cost of holding money, um, let's not argue about the, whether the central bank should set interest rates anymore, but would just suffice it to say, they probably will, and it'll probably give you a few percent, plus or minus, depending on the year. Bonds are a step up from that, which is just risk-adjusted debt. <laughs> if, if, if cash in the bank is, you know, debt, that the bank owes you the money back, or, or you're investing in that, you're investing in savings accounts, effectively, um, company bonds that, you know, probably going to get a little bit more than that uh property the big challenge with property in my mind despite the last 30 years and we've both opined on that over the past goodness knows how many years hmm. um there is a certain amount of land and there are a certain number of dwellings and they're not making any more of it which is both the the property spruikers uh first line it's, it's true right it's absolutely true the value is in the land not the not the buildings but the, the reality is the market is the market which is the country which is everybody living in something or or using an asset for you know, industrial or commercial or retail purposes, the the market, the share market is a really, really, really tiny subset, relatively speaking, of the number of businesses that exist in Australia. There's probably, I don't know, 2 million businesses in Australia. I don't know what the number actually is. The small and There's medium 2, ones. There's 2,000 of those, only 2,000 on the stock market, right? And they're probably the largest. They're probably the best. They're probably the most investable. Why? Because the market tends to sort for that. And so over time, it's been the case that the market the share market tends to have the best businesses with the best returns historically and, and prospective so i think shares will outperform now there'll be lots of volatility because people like you and i and and you know hundreds of thousands of other people place bets every day on what companies are worth and they sometimes are optimistic sometimes pessimistic and most of the time somewhere in between and so if i'm right that the subset of companies the subset's really it's really 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 important it's the one area where we kind of get to cherry pick from a group that's already been cherry picked for us not that every company is great but as a group the average listed company tends to outperform the economy including the share of profits of every other business so i think it's likely to be continue to be the case which is a long way of answering mate why shares so mm. to mine while we say asset allocation and people go to oh a certain proportion of each 
My sale allocation is very simple. It's 100% shares. It just yep. is. Yep. And so, to, you know, it's a long way of answering your original question because I needed to set that up to say that it's my view that on average, the share market has and will continue to be better than the rest of the opportunity set, other assets I could invest in at an index level. Am I sure that my shares of Berkshire Hathaway will do better than your property? Not specifically, no. But as a group, as a portfolio, which we're going to get back to, I think the companies I own will do better than a diversified group of other assets I could buy. Uh, and that's the way I go about thinking about why I'm investing and what I'm investing in. Just quickly to finish off, mate, the one benefit that shares have that you can't get in a you know in a um, efficient way from anywhere else, uh, particularly in property, is broad, very low cost, very simple, very fractionalized, which is exactly what shares are, access to a whole heap of businesses. I probably own 30 companies, I suppose, between my Australian and my US uh, portfolio. And I could buy each of those, I could buy $10 worth of each share or 500 bucks worth of each share or whatever it was if I mm. wanted to. And I've got a bit more than that than most. But the idea of, you know, could I, could I buy investment properties in that proportion, even if I could find the best ones? Uh, and would it actually offer me outperformance over the long term? I don't think so. So the share market is also just beautifully set up to allow for the diversification you started talking about. Yeah, you can't sell your kitchen if you need a little bit of cash, right? For example, right. You got, the liquidity is is huge too. And you can't buy you can't buy someone else's kitchen while someone else buys the second bedroom and another person buys the garage. So no. you, you can't sell your own, but you can't invest in others that way. Now there are some kind of tentative exchanges for property. Um, thus far, they've proven themselves pretty disappointing. I think it's fair to say it. So there, there may be a point at which you could start to think about a diversified property portfolio with a thousand bucks a go, with a reasonable belief in meaningful upside. But the other thing is, you know, again, as I talk about the the property markets. I wouldn't say it's necessarily super efficient, but the market is the market. It's literally, every, you know, the property market is every property, commercial, retail, residential in the country. The share market is like a subset of those. Like that's that's the real, that's one of the, the hidden in plain sight beauties of the stock market that you really can't get anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, intellectually, it just makes sense, right? You've always got to ask, where does the return come from? Where does the return come yeah. from in a bank account? Like someone's, yep. I'm giving someone money and they're giving me ultimately more back, right? Yep. For, forget real inflation adjust, just nominal, right? <laughs> so yeah. where does that come from? Yeah. Well, it, become, it comes from the fact that they've lent it to someone else mm-hmm. who hopefully, at least on average, over time spread enough around people, they invest that and they get a good return. Yeah. Now, Correct. so you have, you're, you're ultimately it's productive, Productive enterprise is always going to have the best shot on goal, right? In terms of, mm-hmm. of, of generating a yield, because you can wow. create value for the world, whether that's through a service or through a good or a combination mm-hmm. of the two, and you can do that in a very economically attractive way, where it just you get more back than than what you um, uh, what you put in. And yeah. and the other great thing about enterprise, productive enterprise, this whether it's a share market or just your own private business, is the reinvestment potential. I mean, yeah. we always talk about compounding for good reasons. A bank accounts not really going to compound <laughs> over long enough timeframes at a high enough interest rate. Yeah, I guess. But yeah. but the fact that I can be a company, make money, and then use that money to s- broaden my operations, new product, a new geography, or something, it means that that flywheel effect has got a lot further to run. So it won't be true <laughs> in most cases. In fact. Let's be real. You said 2,000 companies on the ASX. Yeah. Most of them just burn shareholder cash, right? Yes. But yes. those that get it right and you get that flywheel, it's always at least going to have the the best potential for growth. In other words, is the best return I can get 
if I if we're just approaching this theoretically, I've got X amount of dollars. What's the best way to get a return on that? It's mm. to start up some kind of productive enterprise, well, which would have a really attractive uh, economics. Very much easier said than done. But I don't care who you could be the most brilliant investor in the world, and if your subset is just savings account in Australia, like <laughs> I can shop around and maybe get point one of a percent something better. There's there's just no yeah, exactly. there's no second best when it comes to that that kind of thing. So, you know that I, I agree with you. I think I think that is that is why at least for long term, I would never invest a cent in the money if I needed it in six months. So let's let's yeah. also put that in context. But for any long meaningful period of time i'm really talking five years plus hopefully longer than 10 years plus what else are you going to do like what what else are you going to do it makes in- incredible sense um and just to be fair to property as well i mean property as we've said i just just the objective truth of it has on average been slightly less than than shares it kind of has to be right because again what what what, what can you do with it other than rent it yes. out in terms yes. of you know and okay you can raise uh, rents and stuff, but there's a limit to that, right? Mm-hmm. CSL could increase its profits 20% next year and do that for 10 years. You can't, you can't do that with the property, right? Actually, I, I was saying to you off air, I had on the long weekend, I ran around to a thousand kids' parties, you know, <laughs> and I was chatting, chatting to uh, a couple of the dads there, and one of them made the observation. They're talking about property, of course, right? Of course, and they said, <laughs> "I know you don't, you don't like property." And I had to clarify, and I just I think it's worth doing here as well. I've got nothing against any asset type, right? But it's always just got to be looked through the lens of risk versus return. And I think mm. just want to make that point here. If, we, if I could buy a house now, it was a really good condition. I thought it was on a reasonably scarce. There was a fair amount of scarcity there. Either it was in a mm. good location and, and the rest of it. And I could get a 4% yield on that back up the truck right like i don't mm. don't get me i've got nothing against property whatsoever i got i got a huge uh, problem with property right now <laughs> when i'm getting negative real returns and especially after mm. costs mm. and the rest of it so mm. that's i think that and that's why it's sort of hard to have these set figures of you should have x percent in bonds and you should have x percent in this there will be times you while you can't predict and time how markets will turn i think you can not forecast, but now cast to use that that horrid term, <laughs> which is just to sort of say, I don't, like, yeah. rubber bands can always stri- be stretched a little bit further than you you think they can, and things can always last longer than you think is is sort of possible. But I don't really need to predict the future now, just to sort of say, you know, there's a million homes for my capital, and on a risk adjusted basis, on a return adjusted basis, one just looks objectively better right now. I don't know when the market will finally agree with me and, and recognize that. But again, the lessons from history are, are pretty strong here. It's like it's if you sort of make the generally a, a, a decent investment, that isn't realized. It's usually not realized immediately, but it usually does be realized eventually because there are. It's not physics. There's not laws of the universe here, but there are. There is a certain gravity with financial matters that, you know, after after a while. It's very, it's very hard to sort of ignore the economic reality of these entities, which just keep spitting out ever-increasing sums of cash flow. The market might miss it for a while. It might ignore it. It might doubt it for a bit. But as long as that continues, you know, it's, it's going to work out, which is why you need that long-term term lens on it. But yeah. I think what's fascinating to me, mate, is, and this, I, I want to get off property and, and other things. We'll move to shares because that's kind of our, our bailiwick in a second. But um, so a couple, two thoughts. One, one is that we also need to, like I started by saying there's a theoretical answer and there's a kind of a, a, a 
pragmatic answer to these questions. And I've said lots of times, you've said lots of times, the right thing, the mathematical the mathematical best outcome is not the best outcome for everybody because we're human, not, not robots and mm-hmm. machines, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're someone who needs to sleep at night of cash in the bank, then you know what? That's better than not sleeping at all oh, yeah. or buying and selling stupidly because you just let emotions overcome you because you're so strung out by the whole thing. Oh, yeah. It's just too freaky. If you're going to panic you know, every time there's a 10% drop in the market, don't invest in right. the market. Right, exactly. So, or, or have have other things as well. So you feel like, okay, well, there's a 10% drop, but only 6% of my money's in the share market, at least the other part's in something else. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to drop as much or as far or as frequently. So at least, it, you know, yep. 10% drop in the market means a 5% drop in my overall portfolio. Mm-hmm. I can cope with that. Mm-hmm. So that there is, there's, there's ways that that's where asset allocation is is personal. There is, a, there is a theoretical answer in my view, which is if you've got the time frame and, and, the, and the stomach, I, I'm 100% cash, uh, 100% cash, 100% shares for a very, very good reason, 0% cash, uh, for a very good reason in my opinion. But I have a cast iron stomach as do you. We've been here long enough. We've done this long enough and often enough. But by the way, when I say cast iron stomach, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It sucks. Like it really yeah. genuinely sucks. Oh yeah, I stare at the ceiling late at night on, on many right, a night. Right, <laughs> But we've, we've been, we, we've, I, I talk about the fact that I've separated my brain into two parts, right? The part of me that during the COVID crash went, oh my God, this could be terrible. What if this really does reshape you know, life. Um, there are those who were talking about the GFC as the end of capitalism, right? There are, there are, there are. There's always those doubts. There's two parts of my brain. The part that emotionally goes, "Oh man, this sucks." The other part that goes, "Okay, but suck it up, Phillips. You know how this goes. Keep doing it anyway." Mm. And as long as that other part of my brain can, you know, have have the whip hand when it comes to what I actually do, then I'm okay. And I think that's that's important because. I don't want to. I don't want to suggest to people you have to get to a point of not caring at all. When your portfolio falls, it must have been 35 percent, forty percent, whatever it was during that period. I, don't, I haven't mm. gone back and looked. I probably should for the fun of it now because I can in hindsight. But you know, it, it, you don't don't think you can't do this until you've genuinely not chosen not to care. It's not that you don't care. So you care a lot, but you do it anyway. That's the that's the breakthrough for me when it comes to to investing. So do, do you know just just on that? Do you know what drives me in those situations? It's it's fueled by a fear of future regret. <laughs> nice. That where where it's sort of like it sucks going through it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. You know, every instinct is saying get out, get out, you know, run and seek <laughs> safety. But I'm again, it's not my first yeah. rodeo, right? And I, I've yeah, said many yeah. a time, my biggest regrets are not the losses that I've made in certain periods or even outright on certain shares. It's it's the you get the fat pitch and you you're too nervous, and then you know three years later you look back and go. Well, I'm glad I bought some, but what the hell was I thinking, right? Like, it, and, and it, it's not—it's not just survivorship bias as well. It's just sort of like I really just should have gone hard on everything, even the ones that didn't work out. Because overall, that was—and I knew it, right? And so when when things get really scary, that it actually drives me a lot. I think, well, that sucks, but I don't want to be looking back in three, five years' time, going, "You idiots!" You know, why didn't you take advantage? You always say you're going to take advantage of you. You kind of hope for these situations in a bit of a narcissistic way. Um, so yeah, that, that drives me. I like that a lot. Uh, the only thing I just quickly say, and we'll move on to, to company or, or share specific uh, portfolio construction is when I think about, you mentioned sources of, of return, right? Now, I, I want to be really clear. Any asset can be mispriced. Any asset, a bond, a term deposit, potentially it's not likely to happen. But, I mean, you know, it's possible you look at something and go, 
Well, that's obviously too good to be true. Mm. For example, if you could have fixed a loan at, hey, 2% three years ago and borrowed a reasonable amount of money that you could still pay off when rates rose, it wasn't exactly mispriced, but that was a pretty fat pitch if you want oh, to borrow some talk, money. Right? Talk like to US investors. Like, they get 30 year right, fixed right. rate mortgages over there, right? Like, right. can you blame Locking them? Locking 2%. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, and then, by the way, there's also companies, I think, I think Apple did it. Was it 100 year? Bond at like one percent right. or something, you know. So Who that bought was that? Favor of what, the, what idiots bought that? Anyway, that right. is this whole other conversation. Well, and that's you know, so so there are always individual opportunities to buy or sell an asset at a really attractive price. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett's mentor, talks about Mister Market, who gives you you know, walk knocks on the door every day and says, "Hey, what about this price?" And you can choose to buy or sell at whatever price he suggests. And every now and again. You get a great price. Like, well, okay, I guess I'll sell it. Someone yeah. walks up to me tomorrow and says, I'd like to give you $10 million for your house, Scott. I'm like, I will literally drive you to the solicitor's office now, <laughs> right, before you change your mind. Um, in fact, speaking of which, Warren Buffett talks about, I can't remember which company it was. I have a feeling it was Geico, but it might have been National Indemnity. One of his insurance companies years ago, the, the bloke he bought it from, uh, Buffett had basically said to somebody, hey, this guy twice a year, this guy just has enough of dealing with public markets and just he just has enough. He's like, bugger, I'll sell the business. And Buffett said to him, look, next time he says that, tell him to call me and I'll, I'll do the deal. And yeah. so the guy calls him, Buffett does the deal and the rest is history. <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they, every now and again, a business owner or a, you know, and that's what shareholders are, business owners, or a property owner or a bond owner offers you a stupid price. You should take it. So at an asset, at an asset level, not just asset class, at an individual asset level, it's absolutely worth paying whatever price, if the price is right. Equally, so, you know, when, uh, actually, I'll go straight back to, to property here. What's the source of excess return from property? Now, mm. everyone has, almost everyone has a home. We'll get into homelessness and, and rental stress in a minute. But everyone has, their properties are all, you know, um, they're all owned. You don't really have a choice not having a roof over your head if you can possibly have one. So there's that. The price is largely set by an ongoing market mechanism where, there's not a lot of opportunity. There are so many people in the market at any given time. Even though only five or 5% of houses change hands every year, there are going to be more than one bidder or potential buyer for every house. And equally, everything sold is going to be sold in an active market. The chances of a, of a mispriced individual asset is just really small because of the way these things work. right? It just, just is the way it goes. Um, hmm. And because, frankly, we believe, even if erroneously, that the future is knowable or that pricing is kind of, you know, it's a set percentage, set yield, set whatever... Property tends to be pretty, I will say efficiently priced, mate. You, you, you and I can disagree. Well, we'll probably both agree. We can disagree with the market. I, I disagree. About what a reasonable price is for Recent us. terms, but yeah. But, well, but, what I, but what I mean is that the market is deciding as a group that this price is the price that we're all prepared to pay. It's like one house goes for a price that's half the other house in terms of rental yield or, or oh, whatever. Sure. You know, a two bedroom, four, you know, a four bedroom, two bathroom, one garage house in a given suburb. You can pretty closely work out what it's going to sell for yes the chance of finding a bargain is really really narrow for whatever reason and well so whatever reason the reason is because the rental yield is kind of knowable right you kind of know that if i don't buy it you'll buy it if you don't buy it someone else will buy it or if i don't rent it you'll rent it if you don't rent it someone else will rent it mm-hmm. the, the kind of the, the the inputs into the algebra are pretty knowable within a very narrow range if you ask yourself what's amazon's profit going to be in four years time i own shares everyone knows that or jb hi-fis or catapults because of that inherent uncertainty, because you can't rely on, well, everybody buys a product from Catapult. We all know how much they sell and we all know how much they cost. And you know, there's a reason why Woolies Profit's more knowable than Catapult's, right? Yeah. Because it's just, it's just a different thing. And by the way, if property's overpriced, so Woolworth shares for probably similar reasons. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity for the individual investor is to take advantage of a non-comparable market. You know, four bedroom, three bedroom, two bedroom houses, units, 
they're not a dime a dozen, but there's enough of them that the price is knowable, right? Think about how many what how many houses are there? Eight million houses in Australia. Mm. There are two thousand companies max on the ASX. The sheer ability to compare those and to know with certainty what a they're worth and b what the future's going to look like. Imagine if you had to say, well, in five years' time, the, the rental yield of that property might be one percent or four percent. I'm not sure. Mm. So how much do you pay for that? It's really hard to know. Yep. The same is tr- but the same is true of shares. That's why there is so much frankly discount because of that uncertainty it's also the source of our upside as you suggest yep yep absolutely i mean your error there it's not an error at all it's completely cogent rational thinking but (laughs) but the error that you sort of touch on there is that you assume that people are making these decisions based on cash flows and i'm very very firmly of the view that that is the ultimate source of of value really why would any asset have value if it if it doesn't generate uh, some kind of cash flows, and and obviously the higher the cash flows, the better. So yeah, I think that's I think it's a really good point. I mean, I I don't know what the yield might be in the future based on then prices, but I can know that I'm probably able to rent it out for this amount, and I can probably over time increase that with more or less. You know, <laughs> recent periods have been an exception, but more or less in line with inflation. It's a very it's a much easier proposition than trying to forecast company earnings when when you go out. That's yeah. that's the great thing of property. I think, again, just very quick segue, but I think that's where the, the market has become very efficient because over mm. the decade, last two decades or so, it hasn't been about income at all. It's been entirely about capital growth and capital growth has been entirely fueled by cheap credit. So it's sort of like we're at, this, we're at the bizarre situation where people are actively intentionally structuring their investments to lose money so they get a bit of a tax gain, you know. So so you're right. You're right in any particular, but I, I would just, I think that's where where and the market too let's not let's not keep treat that as a separate case that's why things got really crazy 2020 2021 was was it was it was the interest rates you know stupid that's what that's what like woolies no one had any great shock and surprise in what woolies was going to do but all of a sudden the amount that people were prepared to pay for those earnings changed radically so I don't know what, what what's my point here. My point is, I just I just wanted to jump on that one that you made. Is this like yeah, that's fair. Always focus on the cash flows, and then you can work. It gives you a base to sort of work around that isn't just purely anchored on the speculations of 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 irrational, emotional human beings. <laughs> and I think that's why. Well, like, I, just just I, to I, expand on that, why no. why would I? If the only way I'm going to realize value is through what they call the greater fool theory. In other words, this makes yep. no sense relative to the cash flows, but I'd probably be able to sell it to some other idiot for a higher price in the future, whether that be a share or a property or whatever. It's just a risky proposition. But if you own a, if you own a range of investment properties and then for whatever reason the property market closes, I don't know why that would happen, but imagine if it did, who cares? Mm. Who cares? Mm. I'm, getting, I'm getting this wonderful stream of income. It, it's It's- it, it's its own end, right? And and I think that's the same with shares. Buffett talks about it all the time. In the market, you should be happy if the market closed for ten years. Who cares? Because the share, the, yeah. the proportion of the business you own is putting money, or at least has the potential to put money in your pocket each and every year, and hopefully that increases over time. If I need the market, or if the only way I can realize any return is by flipping it to someone else, and the, the very act of holding it provides me with nothing. <laughs> That is a pretty ordinary investment. That's not an investment. That's a speculation. And I think so. I, I'm going to I'm going to agree with you, but also say that there is an there's also an element of that regularly in the share market. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. Because if, if you talk about 2021, I think you're partly right about interest rates, mate. I think the problem is that even when we start to rash, when we try, when we start to believe there's a rational cause for an emotional response, I think we run the risk of maybe only painting half of the picture. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you look at, and let's take a really simple example, right? The, the 1999.com bubble, right? There wasn't, that wasn't cheap rates. That wasn't, there was, there was, you know, there are times when simply people went, hey, this is that thing might be huge. Let's all buy tech stocks. Mm-hmm. And the NASDAQ fell like 80 or 85% between 1999 and wherever it bottomed out in 2000, 2001. Mm. And I think the, the, I think the point I just wanted to make, I suppose, is if you look at the, the way we talk about, the way you just talk about property is absolutely true regularly of the share market as a whole. And I think that's where, if I go back to the value of shares as, a, as an asset class, the opportunity I think we have with, with shares is to be able to say, A, I won't play during that period of time, I'll play other periods of time, or I'll buy the companies that still make sense despite that. Again, you talk about Berkshire Hathaway, those shares fell, was it 20% during 99, I think? Mm. And the market was up 25%. Like Berkshire underperformed by massive yeah. amount, right? Huge. You didn't have to buy the NASDAQ stock, you could have bought the Berkshire shares. Yep. Equally, even if you'd been dollar cost averaging through that period of time, and people always say, oh, well, yeah, look, you know, the market hasn't recovered from its 2007 peak, as if as if that's the only thing that mattered. But if you're dollar cost averaging before, during, and after, mm. you bought it at much, much, much cheaper prices over time. It's a, it's a bit of a magician's trick of, look at that one peak. If everyone invested only on that day, we've talked about this before, it's about the unluckiest bastard in the world. Mm. If you'd have just invested on that day and then never before and ever since, to now, yeah, maybe your returns hasn't been as good as you would have hoped. Mm-hmm. But you would literally have to be the unluckiest bastard in the world because the rest of us were investing for the 10, 15, 20 years before that and the 20 or 16 years since that and we'll continue for the next X number of decades after this. To pick only one point and say, yeah, well, it hasn't got back to that one point yet is kind of it's kind of madness, right? Yeah. So I think from a from a from an investor's perspective, I, I just want to make the point that the market can be equally irrational from time to time. Hence the talk we had about things falling. I mean, the property market's unlikely, in my view, to ever crash in the short periods of time by as much as the market does when it has a bad day. But it's unlikely to go as well either. Yeah. And over time, I still expect shares to do better. So I don't want to. I don't want to point. I don't want to say the share market is the rational place to play, and the property market's an irrational place to play, at least at the current price. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, it's fair it's simply a case yeah. of emotions are emotions across the board. Frankly. They give us. We talked about you talk about the future regret thing. I mean that you know when the market freaked out about COVID, that was a great time to buy. Now it's harder to do than to say, but you know that that's kind of there. Are, there's plenty of irrationality to go around. Uh, the challenge, I think, with you go back to your point about earnings power. How do property prices go up? Well, there are kind of three components. There is income, there is interest rate, and frankly. There's another version of income, which is just the, the the rental income for those who are providing the return. So I say income is in wages. So if my income goes up, I can buy a more expensive house to live in. If rates go down, I can buy a more expensive place to live in. Or if the wages of other people go up and they can pay me more to rent, then you know I can pay a bit more for that house because I get on a yield basis. That makes some sense. Mm. One but other one other society, quick thing, it'd just be the, ac- yes, the use of very access to capital as well. So just general lending standards. Same thing though, right? Um, yeah. Well, but again, yeah, so, so I guess my point is over, over the, think about the entire residential property market in Australia. Once you once you adjust for interest rates, I think frankly we have done that over the last 18 months for better or worse, probably for worse for many people. Once you once you adjust for rates, once you once you um, equalize for rates, how can how can prices go up? Well, they can only go up if you can afford to pay more for them. How do you afford to pay more? Well, only you get paid more. Now let's take all that all the way back and think about how much wages have or haven't increased over the last 20 years and are likely to in the future. 
they're likely to grow at GDP-ish plus productivity. So overall, despite the evidence or, or apparent evidence of the last 30 years, frankly, and I'll, we can go to that, probably not now actually, but another time, uh, you know, the drivers of, of house price increases over the last 30 or 40 years, not just the last 18 months or the low rate decade before that, but over the last 30 or 40 years, come down to those factors. We had second incomes in households, we had lower interest rates, we had longer mortgages, we had lower loan evaluation or higher loan to evaluation ratios, lower deposit hurdles. Yep. Those things let people jump. But that those Bank, Banks were just throwing money at us all, right? Banks were right. throwing so, money at us. Yeah. What else do you do? You can't add a third income to a household. Rates have already been as low as they're going to go and now coming back up. The, the LVRs are already at 90, 95%. <sighs> Can they go to 105? They did for a while, by the way, back in <laughs> whenever that was. Um, but, you know, so realistically... That those tailwinds now have not, not even become headwinds. They've just stopped altogether. Yeah. But the things that drove the last 30, 40 years of growth. So now think about moving forward. How does a house price increase from here on? It can only increase if rates drop again, and they might at some point when the RBA has dealt with inflation, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit. Or if we earn more, and good luck with that. So think about it at a country level. Think about the property market. Ask yourself, just do the, try, try and do the algebra with it. Yeah, everyone can still say, oh, well, 30 years has gone up by this much, so that's going to go up by that much. And I just did that with shares, by the way. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking about both sides of my mouth here. But ask yourself how, what, what algebraically needs to happen for house prices to increase at a meaningful rate from here. I don't, I can't get there. I genuinely can't get <laughs> We're to with you, man. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so I, with I, shares, here's the thing, right? You can, you can go and get. You know, can, can your what, what can you mention about twenty percent growth before? Uh, a company grows yeah. at CSL. CSL grows at twenty percent a year for the next five, ten years. Yeah. It does that by taking more money from more people in more markets. It, not just the Australian, the entire Australian property market. CSL is in a small proportion of global healthcare spending, which is a small proportion of total global spending. Not much has to happen. I mean, a lot in in CSL's context. But what if they find something that governments are prepared to pay a lot more for to treat? A particular illness or sickness. Mm. What if uh, Amazon managed to open a new, you know, um, operation in a couple of countries or gets gets all the spending? How much we probably I don't know five percent of American spending is probably on Amazon. Might mm. be one percent for Australia. That's you know, they, there's plenty of plenty of blue sky there. Think about Catapult, a tiny little business that's trying to be involved in more sports and more more, more teams and more leagues in more countries. Not much has to happen there for that to change mm. compared to. If you want more for your house, the whole market's got to grow at a certain rate. It just, it just that's why I think just we've kind of laboured it. But the idea of source of value, source of future growth, you've got to answer that for yourself. And that, to my mind, very clearly says property is the way to go. Yeah, and just on your point of extrapolation there, so I think it, mm. it, it I mean, you can't be too critical, right? When you look at a 30, 40 year period of a certain mm. dynamic and go, well, history suggests dot dot dot. Um, mm. I think where you're a, a bit where you can be more uh, objective in it is, you, I mean, the, the S&P chart that you, the Vanguard chart, sorry, that you point to <laughs> is 100, about, yes. 100 plus years, <laughs> right? Right, right. And right, what exactly. you also see in that is that you have huge periods of excess, but then there was like lost decades, mm-hmm. you know, like all the time, you know, 2000 to 2010, I believe the 70s, you know, there's just, there's big periods in that and and you can, and, and same people did the same thing in, in equity markets, just like, oh, this is a terrible place mm-hmm. to be. Look at the last 10 years, that's the long term, nothing's happened. Look at the average return within these markets. We just, we're very good at, at sort of um, extrapolating from what feels like reasonable long-term points. But when there are, when there are these st- cycles that are driven structurally, 
and I mean by actual changes in the nature of the market, as you said, extra incomes in households, structurally lower interest rates, mm. um, uh, deregulation of banks, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they are anomalies to what might otherwise be a quote unquote normal cycle. And it feels like yeah. a long time. Yeah. I think what's also interesting, we've got to move off it, but what what, what is also interesting is if you look at um, any developed world market in, in property over any mm. meaningful period of time, we've actually got records in Amsterdam that go back hundreds of years. Guess what? That goes up with the price of inflation, which <laughs> makes sense, right? Like, right. Exactly. You know, exactly. like that's, exactly. it's, it's pretty much what, what's, what's going to happen. So when you have, mm-hmm. 20 years of you know 7% compound growth or 10% compound growth, there, there needs to be a bit of a mean reversion in, in that, um, I feel at least. But let's talk mm. about let's talk about shares and let's talk, so, talk about yeah, yeah. structuring a portfolio in that context. Well, as, as we do, I think that's why uh, unusually for a podcast about shares generally or for two people who invest in shares, We've spent so long to make your initial point about asset allocation because almost to your very point, we and we said this before, if you if you were to lag the market by two percent per year, you would still do better than every other asset class, historically speaking. Yeah. And that like so that's and that's why asset allocation matters, because even I mean look, you can you can blow up your entire portfolio and end up at zero. So I don't want I don't want to say this is a worst case scenario with shares in the slightest. Mm-hmm. All I mean is that's why asset allocation is so important. It's why you were right to raise it at the very beginning, which is Every dollar statistically over the last 30 years has been invested in any other asset class has cost you money compared to any dollar invested in the average return from shares. Now, I made the point before that averages hide a lot of stuff, so be careful. But that's almost the point. So asset allocation, you know, getting as much as you can, in my view, putting as much as you can reasonably stomach into shares is the right approach. And that takes you most of the way. That starts you on the 40-yard line for the 100-meter dash. Yes. How about, I'm just confused my metric and imperial, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 you're already ahead. Not necessarily of everybody else. You don't have to win this one. You don't have to win at all with investing. You just need to do moderately well. You can finish in the top 40% of the pack and do remarkably well. So, But but if you start ahead by getting the asset allocation piece right, yes. and again, most of our listeners probably get it because they're shares and like, guys, we get it, we get it. It's why it's important to, to really spend the time on because we've talked before about sources of return, speaking of, you know, time and savings rate and then return. Mm. It's We talk about just shares in that context, but it kind of starts with time, savings rate, then making sure you're in the right asset, then the stocks you buy yes. and the, the return you get. That's where, the, that's where it comes from. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to those shares that you talked about, mate. Um, the academics would say, according to the most recent research I've noticed, I can't even cite it. It's one of those you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. 25 shares is considered the right number for appropriate diversification. I want to blow that up because I want to say that 90% of investors, just picking up numbers, misuse that stat. Hmm. If you have 25 companies, you are not as diversified as the academics would suggest because... The academic research suggests 25 companies chosen at random. So if you have 25 bank stocks or 25 miners or 25 IT companies or 25 retailers or 25 companies that are based in Geelong in Victoria or Omaha, Nebraska or whatever it is, none of that is diversification. So I just wanted to make that point up front. We talk about diversification and portfolio construction. The academics don't say any 25 is fine. It is, it is literally a case of making sure the companies that you own are either almost randomly diversified and chosen or 
you need to recognize that you're not diversified just because you've hit some magic number proposed by the academics. Mm. Yes. And the other point I wanted to make, it's an excellent point. I've, uh, you know, um, again, one of the blokes I was chatting to, I think he had largely lithium stocks in there. You know, right. um, <laughs> diversification didn't really help. Diversified across the lithium sector. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Dear. yeah. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll say at odds with what you were just saying, and I, I, oh, I, we can no, it's, I mean I agree, but I, I, I'll it'll, it'll feel as though it's at odds. Which is, <laughs> while everything you say is true, I'm pretty sure I've mm. seen a few bits of different research that says most people who invest in shares lose. Yeah, right. So, so wait a second. How does that? How can two things be true at the same time? That this is the best performing asset class over time, yeah. and yet most people who try their hand at it don't don't do well and it's, it's by the way most companies a vast bulk of companies actually underperform the index yeah even though the average is the average yes most companies by number also do worse than the average actually so i i, I wrote about this recently for the straw man members and i've mentioned this company before no one would have heard of it um or few people would have but it's such a classic example it's called objective corp ocl is the code yep. Um, and it's just been a compounding machine. They do enterprise software for government largely, also enterprise customers. And they've just benefited from this whole digitization of, of enterprise, right? And they've just done an incredible job of compounding. So so much I could mm. say on it. Um, uh, but these, these kinds of companies do all the heavy lifting. And, and the, right. I can give you a very recent example is with the uh, US market, the S&P 500. You take out the top seven stocks, the Apples, the Googles, et cetera. It's actually, it's, it's gone nowhere for a long time. Seven out of 500, right? Um, but my point is, is that that's not unusual. You've got to expect, yeah, you've got to expect that, right? So that's why we always either just ETF it. We get all these ETF questions. Just, just don't overthink it, dude. Passive, mm -hmm. broad-based, you're away. You're good. You're going to capture the big ones. Low cost. You yep. know, and, and on average, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. If you're going to do it yourself, though, expect the same thing. And it's, I can tell you happily with a smile on my face of all, well, not a smile, but, you know, I can see that. I can see, I can, you know, it doesn't, I don't lose any sleep over the fact that I've had all these horror stories because, of course, I'm going to. It's, it, it, the, yeah. the, the, the way to think about it is- By definition. It, it's, yep. it's called the rule of five, um, which is for every five shares I buy, one's going to do really badly, three are going to be mediocre, and one's going to go to the moon. And that's okay. And my example with Objective Corp is actually, these are very rare, right? So this thing has just grown incredibly and the multiples have gone up massively. But you could have done it with Prometicus, you could have done it with Polynovo, you could have done it with Nanasonics, you could have done it with Ordinate, you could have done it with Altium. You could have done it with, actually, there's a lot of them. And so this is actually the crux of my personal investment strategy. I, I go small cap, I go growth. I'm not hyper speculative in terms like they're usually they're always businesses that, that have a, a product and established momentum out there, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of in terms of their their business traction. But they were they were all companies that once once they got going, there was such huge momentum, not in the share price, let me be clear, in in the in the actual business there. Whereas if you bought 20 stocks and you'd only got one or two of these and the rest were just really ordinary. Job done. It's not like, oh, and, and I think too often people look at examples and think, oh, that person just got lucky. And I think, no, not if that was actually what you're expecting, right? I can only, mm. this is going to sound flippant, I can only lose 100%, right? Yeah. But if I bought Objective Corp, I could have made 10x in very short order. In fact, I think it was, here's, here's another little interesting example which helps you think about it. Um, in 2015, shares were at 
$2, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and that had, that had, had been 10x over the last three years. It had gone from 20 cents to $2, right? And then, mm-hmm. wow, that's, that's, that's pretty good. It actually, it's gone up a hell of a lot. Now it's $13 uh, today, mm-hmm. right? And, and it, it's the, these are the ones that you, you know are incredibly hard to find. You know that they are rare. You know that they're exception to the rule. But rather than, rather than try and think about, well, I've, and too many, this is where investors, I think, bail out too quickly. They buy a basket of shares, a couple of them are really battling a stuff this for a joke, I'm out, right? <laughs> not, not, not knowing it, actually, that, no, no, that's, that's normal. That's, that's what you expect. Right. The mistakes are when you yeah. double down yeah. on the bad ones and you, you take profits and you trim the good ones, you know, you weed the, weed the flowers and water the weeds kind, kind of thing. But these, yeah. I think these stories sort of, for me, sort of show that, yeah, I want to, I want to be diversified and to your very exact point that, yes, um, mm. uh, not, not just all where I'm, I have highly what they call correlated risks, but I, I want to spread it around in such a sense, in such a, a, a sense that I only need to capture a, capture a couple of these baby giants, a couple of these monsters, you know, that are just, and then everything will be okay with, within that. And that's that for me is is more of why I think you sort of start with a decent spread. And we can get onto sort of how you manage positions and stuff sort of over time, but I wanted to put that out there because it's. This is not a game of strike rate. Um, this is a game of averages. So I want to provide the counterpoint to that just to, just to flush out that thought yep. because it's only not a game of strike rate if... Well, I, I, you, your point is valid by definition. The strike rate is irrelevant. But the, but the companies you're investing in and their likely spread of returns does determine what strike rate you need yes. to get the average you're looking for. Yes. Which is not, which is not in any way disagree with what you said. I just want to flesh that out yep. because yep. if you're buying Woolies, West Farmers, Coles, CBA, Telstra, whatever, that can be fine as long as you pay a good enough price. Mm. But you need nine out of ten of those to, to be go to go well for you because the upsides are so yes. limited yes. by the fact they're already massive. You know, trees don't grow to the sky. These are strong big agree. Ones, right? Strong agree. They're three hundred year old, six hundred year old gum trees. They're not getting any bigger. And so, or maybe they'll get very, very, very slightly bigger, very, very slowly. So you need to get nine out of 10 of those right. Because if you overpay for six or seven of those, yes. you're, you've almost consigned yourself to fine performance, frankly. I'm not going to say, it's not even disastrous, right? You'll, you'll be completely fine. Woolies will keep growing. CSL will keep growing. Telstra will keep growing. You know, whatever, whatever. Over time, these, these companies will be completely fine. You won't, you, won't, you won't miss having bought them. But the size of those returns, and frankly, there are some, you know, look at the banks over the last five years, you, you've overpaid probably five years ago. Now, if you bought them two years ago or, or a year ago or today, different thing because we're looking at backwards rather than looking forwards. If you're buying stuff and you're saying, I'm going to buy 20 that are 100 bagger opportunities, only one of them works, you still made a squillion bucks. Yes. And so, it, it, you know, the average is all that matters by definition. doesn't matter how you get it, but you need to know the game you're playing. That's Otherwise, you run point. the risk of taking the wrong approach you know, if you if you buy if you buy the, the blue chips trying to get trying to follow Andrew's lead and not care about the strike rate, you you're doing yourself a disservice. I'm so glad you Equally, mentioned that. Yes. If you buy not nine, yeah, if you want nine out of ten from the stock for Andrew's buying, you will give up and say, you know, stuff this for a game of soldiers, I'm out. Yeah. So there is there is definitely that that return. Yep. Mate, um I wanna I wanna ask you about that. So your style is slightly different than my style. I I also I like growing companies as well. I don't buy as many small caps as you, and I don't I don't have as many moonshot potential opportunities as you do. 
uh, I'm probably in the mid capish sort of space on average, mm-hmm. with a couple of ETFs and some soul pats and stuff just thrown in. Um, the I want to ask you about the the way you think about your portfolio from that perspective, because the, what you just described, there will be some people listening who said, "Hang on, that's exactly what I said I was doing in 2020, 2021." And my portfolio was a mess. I'm down 80%. All these stocks that were supposed to be the best things ever mm. have just crashed and burned. The Newixes, the Whispers, the uh, Dubbers, the pick some names here, right? Mm. The stuff that flew arguably too close to the moon and, or too close to the sun, I should say, and, and, have, and have come crashing back to earth. People would have said, well, hang on, that's exactly the approach I took two, three, four years ago. And look what's happened to me. Paige, you're talking rubbish. Uh, that doesn't work. Look how much money I've lost. Mm. Uh, how, how did, so, so how do you think about constructing a portfolio when the very strategy you're talking about, people will say, I tried that, it didn't work. That's fundamentally not a winning strategy. Mm. How, do you, how, how do you respond to that? How was your portfolio different to that? What are you looking for in that context? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I try to be as informed by history as, as I can here. And I, I think too often that people rule on, the viability of things too quickly. I mean, if you do something, anything over a couple year period on the market, there's no validity to that whatsoever. I mean, anything could happen. It's, <laughs> yeah. just, it's luck really at, at those kinds of timescales. So if you kind of thought that sounded good, I'm doing that a year later, I'm down 80%. This is all rubbish. I was like, well, where did yeah. you read that you have to just do this over a 12 month period? Like that's, that's nonsense, right? Yeah, um, nice. And so what, is, what does history tell you about these these objective corps, these Prometicuses, these Nanasonics, these kinds of mm. these kinds of company, um, they're always expensive. They're super volatile. They spend very long periods going against the market and and falling down. Um, you have all this temptation to quote unquote lock in profits along the way. <laughs> I mean, you bought shares in Objective Corp in 2015 at two bucks. Did you sell at three? To at four? At five? Incredible profits at any point in time. Mm-hmm. Stupid thing to do. So what do you? What do you? I, I think it's about going in with very clear expectations and and also understanding what it is um, that that these things do not happen overnight you cannot force the petals of a flower to bloom scott you can only nurture it and give it time right very zen of you that'll be on a greeting card one day or or, you know i probably stole it off a hallmark but (laughs) but it it is it is really really important to 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 grasp that and 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 for Mm. me it's um it's also important to remember that none of this is set in stone I can hang up from you right now and completely reorder things in 10 minutes. Click, 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 click. It probably t- hopefully, t- hopefully takes me longer than that to really think it through. <laughs> but yep. mechanically, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't take long. So I think, I think you – so let me, I'm being all over the place here. One, you've got to give it, uh, it time. Two, you've got to mm-hmm. be very clear in recognizing when something is clearly busted. Not because the share price is down, but because your expectations for the business are just way off the mark. I expected this company to grow at high double, high double digit rates for many, many years and it's going backwards. It's broken, right? Whatever the market says that I was wrong and I'm out. And so and you, you have that uh, discipline to, to sort of do that. You have the discipline to resist selling businesses that are on that J curve that are getting incredible sort of traction. And then, and then you don't, you're not pivoting because you're trying to be too clever and restructure and reweight and blah, 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 everything along the way, but you're just making sure that does the business, is the business still performing to my expectation? Is the price reasonably sensible given to a future sort of outlook? 
if so, then I probably don't need to change anything whatsoever. Um, and and so it's it's a it's a it's you're just constantly making guesses at various points in time, but you get to course correct. You get to course correct all of the time, mm. and that is that does require really deeply understanding your businesses. It does require sort of keeping up to date. It doesn't mean standing in front of twelve screens, you know, like a lot of those idiots do. You just, you, it just, it just means making sure when a company has an announcement or it releases its half yearly or full yearly, you, you read the damn thing because you've got in, you've got an investment in it, right? And 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 you and I, I guess, but it really just does come down to expectation. I really want to be clear here. This is not what I'm I'm advocating that everyone should do this. Just that I have I do it this way. I do it. Because I feel as though it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty good process relative to my circumstances, relative to my temperament, relative to to my outlook. But the decision is sort of set by the context in which I sort of set all of that up, and and that's that's just really important to know. I think mm. before you do anything, it's just sort of like too often it's just like I'm investing in shares, like we're all doing the same thing. You know, there's a hundred different ways to skin a cat. Some are better than others, and some are better than others for different people in different times. But but you've got to know where you're you're sort of starting from and, and what is a reasonable expectation there. And I, I take a lot of inspiration from David Gardner, one of the founders of the Fool. Right? He's got an awful strike rate. He's got you know. <laughs> you don't, doesn't, I'm not speaking out of school here. He talks about it all the time, right? Oh, totally. Three yeah. out of ten, right? Something like that. You know. He he, he says uh, partly proudly, partly uh, humbly, kind of you know, um, self-deprecatingly. He has more losers than anybody else at the Monthly Fool. Oh yeah, oh, more losing stock picks than anyone else at the Monthly Fool. And you get you see that you ah oh, you know, another one oh, got it wrong. It's like look yeah, at yeah. the long term average returns there. And he what did he do? And because and not because he he's he's clear in what he is trying to do. And when you're clear mm -hmm. with that, the expectations become very obvious. So when something doesn't work out, I'm like, well, what I. This wasn't a surprise. In fact, I, I didn't I didn't know if I necessarily expected it with that company, but I expect it with a very high percentage of my companies that that's mm -hmm. that that is going to be the case. This is normal. This is what I'm expecting. So I want to try in as we kind of get towards the end of the podcast to give people something to take away specifically because we've done lots of it depends you've got to know yourself all that kind of stuff and that's very again very zen very very can't force flowers to bloom i can i say when well, talk about flowers blooming i can't help but think of uh, bob catter's uh, famous um you know let a thousand uh, flowers a thousand bloom. flowers bloom for all i care yeah, exactly yeah, uh, look it up on youtube it's it's just the way he delivers it is spectacular anyway um the I, i'm mindful that lots of it depends do you you all that kind of stuff which plenty of listeners thinking fine but what do i actually do with that how do i how do i put that into practice yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna start with my thoughts mate and i'm going to then ask you for yours yep i think it makes sense for me personally to try to find my best ideas uh because it makes sense to, to come up with your best ideas and i will say to people the more confident you are and I, I, I want to be really clear without being condescending. The more reason you have to be confident, in other words, com I don't talk about arrogance here, I'm talking about genuine confidence, earned confidence, justified confidence. Uh, the, more, the more confident you are in your approach, in your track record, in your ability, not just because the market went up so everything went up, but genuine ability to, to analyze businesses, to understand pricing, to buy at good valuations, the more concentrated you can afford to be. The less certain you are about your ability to do that, the more diversified, the less concentrated, the broader, choose your term, 
you should be. So that, that's my first piece of general advice for our listeners is start broad and then narrow down. Uh, because there's just, you know, uh, you know, if you're 18, you've probably got that much life experience. You've probably not been investing before. You're just starting out. Do you think you can pick the five companies you're going to do best? Probably not a great starting point, unless you're Warren Buffett. Or if you're mm. Buffett, knock yourself out. Uh, I'm not, you're not, most of our listeners aren't. Warren, if you're listening, g'day. Thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, but uh, broadly speaking, I would suggest that the less experienced, the less justified confidence you have in your ability the more diversified you should be. Now, that doesn't mean you just have lots of companies. You just put a decent chunk of your portfolio in ETFs. Mm. You can have one ETF and then five, seven, ten other companies because if that ETF is 20, 30, 40% of your portfolio, that takes care of most of the diversification for you. So we say yeah. number of companies. ETFs have turned that on its head because if you have an ETF that's half your portfolio, you can have two, one other company, two other companies, three other companies, and, and most of the diversification is done by the ETF already. You could have ninety percent in, in a in a broad based ETF, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so that that that'd be my first my first starting point is the less reason you have to believe you are you know going to necessarily beat the market, the more diversified you should Can I interrupt very quickly? Please. What I would say there is don't feel as though you're taking a huge compromise there either. Yes, that's I, a good point. I heard this really great <laughs> yes. podcast a little while ago. Um, I forget which one it was, but Morgan Housel was the guest. Um, right. Former colleague of ours in the US, Motley Fool. Excellent writer, works for the Collaborative Fund. They just like buy his book. I, you know, I get, I get, uh, I, I get no kickback from it, but I can highly sort uh-huh. of recommend. The psychology it. of money. Yeah, do. yeah, it's just such Brilliant. a great. He's just such a great writer. Anyway, he, I hate him because he's so good at writing. By the way, I, I, he I has see. my eternal. Other other young people, I hate good writers. <laughs> they're the people I wish I could be. But go on. Good writing is hard. Um, oh. uh, he invests all his money in, in ETFs. And, yes, yes, and he's right. right deep in the space, right? Yep, and yep. and he was sort of saying, all my friends are like, why would you do that for? You could do this. And he's like, you're all assuming that I'm not doing well. Yeah, You're assuming that I'm making this huge, you know, I'm giving up all of these untold riches. Like, actually, I'm doing just fine <laughs> because markets tend to do just fine. So, you yeah, know, that is yeah. that is just a point worth making there yes, is that yes. you're absolutely right. Be honest in, in, your, in your confidence in your ability and the rest of it. Start off with yeah. those things. But it's not like you're really just like, oh, I'm, I'm missing out on all these potential untold gains if I only did it myself. Uh, not necessarily. Point. Yep, that's a great point. My second offering, mate, is to think about diversification in a more nuanced way, which doesn't mean it's difficult. Just means you have to put your thinking cap on to the way people would talk about it, right? You, you know, four lithium miners is not diversification. Four banks is not diversification. But equally, equally, a, a, a bank and a retailer aren't as diversified as you think either because they're both reliant on you know, economic activity and, and consumer incomes and, and uh, you know, the confidence or strength of, of an economy. So think about businesses in the context of the factors that will make them successful or unsuccessful and really do that. Don't, don't think about the, the quotes industry. Can I tell you, there's nothing, there's, tech is Cisco plus Amazon plus Apple plus Afterpay. Now, if you think those four businesses are even close to the same or even meaningfully interrelated, I've got another I've got another message for you, right? They're just they're very they're all tech in quotes. They're not very useful. Um, same with consumer discretionary. The same with other stuff. I mean, Sol Pats is apparently an insurance company because it has some oh no industrials. I think Berkshire's officially an insurance company. I mean, realistically, you know, if I owned QBE and Berkshire Hathaway, I'm pretty okay with that. Mm. I don't own QBE, I'd sell it. But you know what I mean. Uh, so think about think about the exposure of your portfolio to the same number of risk factors. And again, like the piece I just mentioned before, the more 
reason you have to be confident, the less absolute diversification you can you can afford, uh, and the the more you should be uh, just just well again the less experienced, less confident you are, the more diversification you'd have. Think about where things are impacting your companies because if you get a big factor wrong, then you may cause yourself some grief. The last one is the longer term your focus and genuine focus, not I wish I was long-term, but I can genuinely afford to say I've got a 10, 15, 20, 30, 40-year time horizon, the more you can afford to you know, wear the slings and arrows. Back to the asset allocation thing. If you're in retirement, you need some money, either have it coming from dividends or have some cash set aside. Don't rely on share prices being what they are in 12 months' time to be able to fund the lifestyle you've got. So they're probably my my key portfolio uh, recommendations or suggestions as you think about what's right for you in terms of portfolio construction. I would be in your invested invested assets, still 100% shares. But if I was 69 and I needed a certain amount of money to live and I was investing in growth shares, for example, I would have a decent amount of cash on the sidelines, probably two or three years living expenses. Because like the last couple of years have shown, if you if you bought in 2021 and then spent two years just going backwards at a rate of knots, you don't want to be selling if you think the shares are too cheap to sell. You want to be able to have some of that cash on the sidelines. So think about where you are in your life as well. Yeah. What what, uh, what what tips, what hints, what suggestions would you give our listeners, Ram? Um Yeah, I mean, people really want a, and you understand why, right? We all do. You want specifics, you yeah. want a formula, you want an approach, just do this and you'll be fine. 30% equities, right. do this, within that, do 10 stocks, make sure of this and that, and boom, 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 tick all the boxes and, and, and you'll yep. be fine. Yep. Just, it doesn't exist. So I, I do... I don't really apologize for for all of the it depends and maybes because oh totally yeah, yeah yeah you know it's why we have financial planners right because it does depend. Um, uh, I would just say in your analysis of of uh, your skill, um, it's very hard not to let the ego get in the way. I've said before that this is the mm, most dangerous mm. start any investor can have is to start investing in a bull market where everything you touch goes to, to, to gold, you know, just off to the moon. I'm, I'm a genius and can last for years. And you think, well, I started off prudently and sensibly. I put most of it into an ETF and I started picking shares. The ETF went up 8%. My portfolio <laughs> of shares over the last two years up 50%. I'm just, I'm right. going to go, I'm, I'm going to do this full time, right? And it just, there, right, there right, can right. often be that pride before fall moment. And I speak from experience here as well, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you, the, the periods where you really feel like a master of the universe is just really dangerous. And and so mm-hmm. in your reflections, I, I, do, I do think it's a very valuable exercise every year or so just to sort of look back and go, well, what happened and, and why? You know, was it the realization of a of an investment the- thesis, um, uh, or did Philip Lowe cut interest rates by four yeah, percent and the entire equity market right. went up? Exactly. You know, and I mean, you'll yep, take yep, the gain. Yep. Don't saying you don't. You've just yes. that's why you always stay invested because you can't predict these things, and you know they you know they're gonna throw things around. But you 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 kind of got to have the good times in there to sort of make up for the bad time. That's why you just stay invested, right? So it's it's all you good. But 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 really reflect honestly on. Mm-hmm. Were are you the genius that you think you are, and everyone knows you are, or were you right yep. place, right time yep. for that particular thing? And that's a very hard thing to do. And I, a lot of soul searching for me, always trying to sort of figure figure that out for the ones that went really well and for the ones that went really bad as well. So it's 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 a very difficult process. I think for a lot of people, particularly um, uh, those of us with a Y chromosome, um, <laughs> you uh, you you love the oh, what, what how do i say this you, 
there there is something where men are just love the the speculative dimension to it. The, you know, we do, right? Yeah. It's, a, yep. it's a lot of fun. Yep. We all feel as though we are Warren Buffett and we, we can kind of do it. I mean, this is the great thing with with the the liquidity and the fractionalization of the mm. equity market is, is that you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. So have some fun. I've got, look, honestly, if you want to buy super speculative early stage mining prospecting company, knock yourself out. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm going to tell you not to I'm, put. I'm, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Well, look, I, I, let me put it in context. <laughs> like, if you're going to put 20% of your money into it, be, be careful. If you've got 95% of your money into a low-cost passive index tracking ETF, yep. Yep. and this this allows you to scratch that itch, feel as though you get the the the, the wins when they happen, and you know it, it it's going to be a wonderful. It's going to keep you in check. It's going to save you from yourself to some yeah, extent. That's also true. So you, yes, you can right. do that, right? You can yeah. you can if, have, if you got the urge, quarantine it. Yeah, yeah just quarantine it. You get it's yeah, it's yeah. it's like having a sports bet account off on the side. No one, well, hopefully, no one realizes <laughs> you're going to make any money off that. But if that, if that gives you if that gives you a bit of joy, yeah. and more importantly, yeah. if it stops you doing stupid things. <laughs> Then that is, I will. You'll, you, you'll have my full endorsement. You'll have my full endorsement for that. There you go. Quote Andrew Page endorses <laughs> sports bet accounts. Um, I don't, by mate. The way. Uh, I, I think <laughs> no way. Well, you said that. I, I'll, I'll selectively quote that for you later, <laughs> um, mate. That is. I, I hope our listeners have really enjoyed a bit of a, a bit of a dive into how to think about portfolios. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we spend a lot of time on asset allocation because, again, I think that's the the most valuable part. If you get a roughly average share market response or result, you're going to be better than almost every other asset class over the long term is my strong view. Certainly been the case in the past. I see no reason for that to change. So that was important. And then just some ideas about how to think about when and how uh, to diversify, how to construct your portfolio, how to think about strike rates and averages. Um, there's probably, that's probably the most important thing I'm going to just ask our listeners to remember is it's not about the strike rate, but you have to know the game you're playing. You mm. really have to know the game you're playing. Yeah. Um, because if you, if you, <laughs> you know, if you think the strike rate doesn't matter, but you're not, you're not going to get a, the, the average you're looking for, then it does. Yeah. And it is, it is genuinely the, it's the strike rate times the average return per stock. Yeah. That gives you the total average. That's how the maths works. So um, we don't do a lot of algebra on the podcast, but thinking through that idea, I hope has, uh, has illuminated a lot for, for a lot of our listeners. Any any parting thoughts, mate? Just stay humble. Um, remember that, that it is a lifelong process. I mean, I don't care if you're 80 or 90. Mm. I, if you're not learning or at least reflecting and adapting and growing as an investor, something's wrong. Uh, you, so you, it, it is not ever anything that you just, oh, I've got it now, I'm fine. Like it will always be <laughs> a learning experience. And as I say, yeah, well, stay humble, keep learning, be open-minded, be honest with yourself. And I think it just gives you a good foundation to work from. Nice. All I'm going to add, I mentioned halfway through, but in a different context, keep dollar cost averaging as well. Because well, that's the other free kick the, in investing. Yeah. Right. It, it, there, there is so much that comes down to circumstance. Uh, simply by doing it over time in small regular increments, you, you, you really do take out a lot of the stuff that's... You won't change the volatility of the market, but you get the opportunity to... It, frankly, when shares are more expensive, you buy fewer of them. When they're cheap, you buy more of them. It just, it just weights things in your favor. So um, do what Andrew says. And also dollar cost. Uh, dollar co- can I give you a crazy example of that I heard the other day? And, not, and it's not to segue into one of my favorite topics, but okay. even if you'd started investing in Bitcoin at the peak, oh, right? No. In, in, it's 69,000 US. <sighs> 
you're in profit today if you just dollar cost averaged. Like uh, I think it was oh, every, there you every go. week. That's cool. And I just I just say that because it's an extremely yep, volatile asset that's well yep. down off its peak. But it's you will find this whether we're talking about CSL or Objective Corp mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. It is just such a guaranteed. It's not as good as picking the bottom and selling it. Oh, obviously, yeah. but it is, it, but it, but it, it but it really, it's a lot more achievable. Oh, it's, and it just takes it away. It yeah. just takes all yeah. of that structures and timing stuff away. Focus mm-hmm. your time and energy on, on being the most productive person that you can earning money in a way that is enjoyable to you saving, <laughs> uh, you know, not spending it all and saving some, and then just regularly kicking it in. It's just, it's so simple. It's like, in fact, it's too simple that people feel as though they need to complicate things. But, but really, if you do nothing other than that, uh, I won't guarantee it because you can't in this game, but it, it's, it's about <laughs> as close to a guarantee as you can get for very, whether it's market beating or not, very satisfactory, wealth-creating long-term returns. If passive ETF, regular dollar cost averaging, uh, job done, job done. And on that, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.